last week. The US government made money out of the uh, troubled asset relief program or the TARP at the time. They made more money than they put in. And, and so whilst people say government shouldn't bail out equity holders, when they did bail out the equity holders, they did make a profit, even though it was just a small one. Welcome to the Breaking Chains Crypto Podcast. Every fortnight, we delve into the rumor mills, the developments, the industry news behind crypto, DeFi, Web3, and what makes the industry tick. From an insider's perspective on the true secrets and developments of what really makes a difference, how we're coming out of the crypto winter, and how the most exciting coins, tokens, and verticals to emerge from the industry will change the world. Stay tuned for more news from Breaking Chains. Hey guys, uh, welcome to the third episode of the Breaking Chains podcast. Once again, I'm here with, with Reese and Ajit. And this week, we've got a lot of really fun things to talk about with everything breaking in the traditional financial services system and a few other things going on in the crypto system. So, uh, Reese, have you been? Yeah, good, mate. Good. Trying to navigate the turmoil of um, reliving 2008 flashbacks, I think. So it's been a very interesting few weeks since we recorded well, last. I, I'm an authority on this because I've worked at both Credit Suisse and UBS. I spent 10 years at, uh, at UBS and seven at Credit Suisse. I hear you're in the jungle at the moment, though, Lucas. I am, mate. You know I like to be in the jungle. But actually, I'm in the bush. I'm in, I'm in the middle of, of East Africa. So uh, a different perspective this this week. And uh, we're about to you, Ajit. Are you still in the Middle East? Uh, no, I'm, I moved here. I moved to Dubai. Uh, now just, just waiting for all the American DeFi friends to move in, especially Jared Gray, who just got served a subpoena by the SEC. Oh, right. Uh, yeah, so uh, it's kind of funny that, you know, Jared came on to be this head chef for sushi, if the DeFi protocol can have a CEO, uh, that's the closest I've heard. Uh, and uh, you know, they set up a whole entity because some lawyer advised them that you know setting up a corporate structure around DeFi protocol uh, limits liability. It probably does. Uh, but then the SEC said, "All right, now we have an entity to serve a notice to. Here you go, Jared. You're getting a letter from us. So I'm hoping that Jared will move to Dubai as well." Oh God. Hey, well, it's that of Bali, isn't it? That's the... Yeah, it's a, this is a better time zone. What, where's Daquan these days? Uh, Serbia. Yeah, Serbia. Cold, yeah, man. I hope he has good, strong Serbian guards. It's either the really hot places or the really cold places. It seems there's no extradition. Yeah. I don't want to be in any of those places. <laughs> no, me either. Well, All right, let's, <laughs> you know, let's, uh, let's talk um, banking failure recap. Um, Lucas, do you want to, oh, given yeah. like your have probably have oh, your man, PTSD oh, flashbacks? Oh God! To... Yes. I think the, I think the Credit Suisse failure is is bigger than than the, than anything in crypto, right? It's huge. And uh, if you want to see people getting rugged, you can look at Saudis, the Qataris, and all those you know eighty one bondholders that have been completely rugged to a far greater amount than any crypto rug pull in history. I think they just got rugged to $13.5 billion. I mean, that's that's got to be a record. And uh, I think even the combined losses of, of last year probably don't reach that, do they, Reese? Explain to me how this works. I thought Saudis lost a billion dollars. Did you say 13 Okay, so, so so there's these 81 uh, tier one capital bonds that the Swiss regulator wrote to zero. 
So everyone that was holding thirteen, that holding those tier one capital bonds, which were paying like eight nine percent, got completely rugged to zero by the Swiss regulator. Oh God, what a rug bill! And ahead of equity holders, right? So they got rugged well ahead of any equity holders, and obviously the equity holders are the Saudis and the Qataris, and uh, obviously that's um, that's the big difference here, right? Is um, it's huge, like the and obviously Credit Suisse is a big big financial services firm. And it's just been consumed by the Swiss regulator into UBS. So, you know, there was a, a potential bid from BlackRock that never came through. The Swiss want to keep things Swiss, especially in private banking. And uh, UBS, which was founded on the merger of Swiss Bank Corporation when Union Bank of Switzerland failed under LTCM. And like they like to say, we kept the name UBS, but we kept the keys, which is the three keys of Swiss Bank Corporation. And now you've got Credit Suisse folding into uh, UBS and UBS was the one that lost $50 billion during the GFC and Credit Suisse had obviously done quite well during the GFC and uh, how we are now 15 years later um, Credit Suisse is now part of UBS and we live in interesting times but you know that's uh, a big name to fall why don't they just call it the Swiss National Bank instead of you know UBS or whatever it is because the Swiss like... National Bank already exists yeah, that's that's true. That's the central bank, right? <laughs> yeah, it's called the Swiss National Bank. Yeah, so that's probably why they don't call it the Swiss National Bank. Again. <laughs> okay, how about the National Bank, of, nationalized bank of Switzerland? Uh, something, something. Well, maybe it should become the Unionized Bank of Switzerland because everyone's going unionized these days. Um, but one of the interesting things that people don't realize is why Credit Suisse never got into crypto was because um, its former COO. Uh, not going to mention any names, put a complete blanket ban on all crypto uh, blockchain activity in the firm. Uh, she's no longer with the firm. Oh, I shouldn't have said she, but that person is no longer with the firm. But that's why they never got into it from a private banking or an asset management perspective. Do you remember UBS had a CTO, CIO, who essentially became a major ICO proponent and an advisor to some pretty crazy ICOs back in the day and a thought leader that the guy went to well, live in the, the crypto I valley? I think the one of the most famous ex uh, UBS guys, um, Andy Armstrong, who ran FX Global FX at UBS during the GFC, um, he went on to run um, Seba, I believe, or was a senior board member of Seba. He went to Julius Baer and then went to Seba. Well, I was thinking of Oliver Bussman, Mister Bussman. I, I, I advise some pretty crazy guys. He was, I think, one of them was IOTA, which was this. Uh, strange IoT ICO project back in the day. I think he was also a brain behind uh, the Crypto Valley thing, right? So, and and I think he was a, a pretty pro-crypto thought leader. UB, and then I think UBS and uh, Credit Suisse both ended up doing DLT and never really got around to doing crypto. Yeah. I think that the, the biggest problem was the regulatory capital in banks, but before that became a thing, um, there was obviously a lot of movement, in, especially in Switzerland, around crypto. Obviously, we had Seba, Julius Baer, etc. Um, Swiss government and regulator were pretty friendly towards crypto. ETH Foundation um, so, yeah. initially there, wasn't it? ETH Foundation was initially yeah. set up there, pretty sure. And mm -hmm. ETH is then, I think every foundation is there. You yeah. know, Tezos invented this technique yeah. of essentially setting up a US labs company where all the devs and marketing people are and then setting up a foundation in Switzerland which does this token launch thing and kind of isolate the Swiss nonprofit from from various US rules. Uh, and that kind of playbook became pretty standard. Now I think 
a whole bunch of foundations that were originally elsewhere are either setting up in Switzerland or Cayman. Yeah, no, absolutely. And obviously we lost um, Signature and SVB and Silvergate. They've gone. Yeah, Operation uh, choke, okay. choke Point. Is that the is that the thing? Yeah. That Operation Choke Point well, that, cut off the fiat yeah, rail? US dollar fiat. Well, yeah, exactly. Yeah, killed it, right? Yeah. It's a scandal. Well, we need them to get off here, so... <laughs> I know. Isn't that interesting? Like, there's still, you can't actually be right. This is a weird, I think we, we spoke about this in the last episode, but like the easiest failure point right now is the fiat on and off ramps because then there's not distributed enough. But like USDC flipped the bank on. What was the bank they ended up bringing on um, on the Monday to do the redemptions? Uh, it's escaping me right now. But that uh, turned around pretty quick. Like that USDC situation over the weekend was pretty wild. Um, one that we haven't seen in uh, crypto before, really, like someone like a, even Tether hasn't depegged that much um, in recent memory. Well, well, the backbone of of of, of stablecoins is is the dollar, right? U.S. dollar stablecoins is a banking operation of behind the scenes, right? And when the banks are shut, people want liquidity. The only place they can go is you know shadow market, right? So where do you go if you can't get your redemptions on the weekend? Or if you think SVB's gone, Signature's gone, Silvergate's gone, you say, well, I want to get my 80 cents on the dollar, despite the fact that you've got such a huge amount of assets beyond that 80 cents on the dollar, then you obviously need liquidity. But the other thing people got to realize is there's a lot of people with USDC that aren't banked and aren't haven't got accounts at Circle. Because they don't have accounts at Circle, there's no exit for them. So their only yeah. real exit is to exit through their uh, other channels. And that's why probably why they wanted to liquidate then, because they can't get it out of Circle. Yeah, remember it's Justin Sun had about 8 billion of stable coins in Aave and Compound at the peak of the DeFi summer. I wonder which you you know banks uh, Justin Sun has accounts with. He was doing I some interesting arbitrage pe- on, on chain through that. He did a lot of redemptions back and forward. He's always interesting to watch in drama situations, Justin. His excellency, I will say, sorry. Apologies. But I think, you I think know, Lucas's point is very valid that a lot of USDC is probably never going to be converted into fiat because the holders don't want it to deal with the bank or cannot deal with the bank. Yeah. And I also think that I've also been saying for years that stable coins are credit instruments. And everyone laughed at me and said, you know, you know, they're, they're fully backed, et cetera. Well, we saw that it's possibly not fully backed, right? Until the Fed came in and rescued them and guaranteed those deposits. Meantime, Balaji got everyone excited by saying that, look, you know, banks are dying. And I mean, I don't remember his exact words. Uh, but he effectively said that the banking, Ajit, I think yeah, banking system is collapsing. So dollar is going to be, you know, devalued, which will lead to hyperinflation. And Bitcoin is going to go to $1 million. And this is the bit signal we have all been waiting for. So he's going full evangelical uh, and making some very interesting arguments on various podcasts and on Twitter got a lot of people excited uh, and I think brought Bitcoin back into mainstream attention. Uh, so what do you guys think about that? It feels like a high target to me. <laughs> Just off the cuff. 
Well, if the US dollar becomes like the Zimbabwean dollar, then, you know, who knows, maybe we'll go to a billion per Bitcoin and I'm buying canned food and, okay, that was a joke, you know, I'm buying canned food and fuel in advance, storing it in my basement uh, in case allergies right? Uh, yeah, yeah. So, I, but, I, but what about his thesis that, you know, uh, that this is kind of this uh, collapse moment for banks because banks essentially followed the Fed into buying a bunch of treasuries and then, uh, you know, a bunch of these hold to maturity securities, which weren't supposed to take market market, market loss. But now the Fed has been raising interest rates. So the Fed has effectively rugged all these banks and wiped out their capital, uh, which means now the Fed has to essentially back, you know, and that's causing a bit of panic and you people are withdrawing money out of their mobile phones. Uh, this is happening at a speed that no one has ever seen. So now the Fed has to backstop all deposits, which is kind of what's happening, right? With FDIC essentially backstopping all deposits. So now banking, as we know, fractional reserve banking, as we know, is going to collapse because which means and to backstop all of the banking, the Fed will have to print $17 trillion or some number, which will lead to devaluation and hyperinflation by laws of demand and supply. That's kind of the full chain of the argument. So uh, what are the pros and cons? Uh, Reis, Lucas, are you guys pro this or against this? I think I think in the world where that happens, and Lucas, it'd be good to get your opinion on this too. I think in the world where that actually happens, Bitcoin will come under extreme scrutiny from those same organizations that are like bailing out, right? Like we just talked about like the off-ramp to um, for USDC. And that off-ramp is still a bank uh, in the United States. It's still subject. Like if there there became a, a, like a flood of capital out of the US dollar into Bitcoin, where the price is appreciating that much, I would expect action to be taken, like executive order action to be taken on it from a realistic perspective, because that that would and we've heard this rhetoric before from. Um, government officials in different nation states about the threat that Bitcoin does pose to the economy. And I think it would be a very um, fine line. I don't think like we want Bitcoin to be, I don't, I don't believe adopting Bitcoin that way is the best path to um, getting to the end result that we're trying to get to. I think it's slow, gradual over time and you sneak in, you kick the door down, they'll throw you out of the house is like my perspective on that. Like I don't think like this crazy scenario where we rally to a million dollars ends well um, for crypto. <laughs> like I think it's like it's probably net negative outcome. We just need to slowly grind up and like move in with the money supply over time and then ossify that way. Not like kick the door down. I, I think that's like a, we're asking for more attention than what we can possibly handle given like how poorly we handled the weekend with USDC. Uh, <laughs> Well, I mean, I think I think people shut the bed, right, with, on the weekend when it came to USDC. I mean, just talking to people, it's like, seriously, do you really think it's worth 80 cents on the dollar given this backstop? And people just didn't care, right? They just don't, they just were, they, they, they thought, oh, if I rush out the door, then by Monday morning, that 20 cents in the dollar turned around, right? They're basically literally looking and go, well, that was a dumb weekend, you know? I think it's actually crypto's biggest enemy is it's not 24-7. It, being 24-7 makes it, it never gets a rest. It never gets a stop for people to say, okay, let's just stop and take stock and then rethink, right? And I think not having that respite forced a lot of people to lose a lot of money. Um, yeah. And I think I've been on the record saying this. Is a lot of people are going to lose a lot of money this weekend because they don't understand how banking works. Um, I true. think it's a really good thing. 
I, I think it's a really good thing that the, the Fed stands behind all deposits in banks. Yeah, I know some DeFi treasuries that sold, you know, their USDC at like 89 cents and also some funds that sold out of their USDC if they understood how banking works. They could have waited another, uh, you know, for 24 hours. But but I think the right, Reese, is that uh, a, a massive rally in Bitcoin obviously doesn't end well because the the regulators will just, you know, close off the the exits, right? People want to monetize that that value. You can be stuck in something, but if you can't use it for anything, it's still worth. It, it then yeah. goes into shadow banking system, right? Once it goes into shadow banking system, right, you're now acting outside outside the law, right? And that that I think is where it comes from. You don't want that. You want it, as you say, to grind higher, and let it prove its case over time, not instantly. Yeah, some of the some of the narrative and rhetoric around Bitcoin is also not necessarily good for crypto, right? So we we just come out of a terrible year, uh, you know, it's six months of absolute horror in this industry, and now I think there are people who are trying to build, rebuild bridges on the policy side, and you know, kind of speak to the social benefits of the of the asset. And in the meantime, wasn't well, SPF people, trying to build bridges yeah. on the policy side? Well, he was, but then he that's how he did a lot of damage, right? Because he was doing the most work on taking crypto mainstream. Well, he was he was also committing eight billion in fraud. So I think the now people put those things together and say, look, we we had on one guy who used to say all these wonderful things and look at what he did. So I think now we have a lot of, you know, undoing the damage to do. And I think if we just go bazooka and you know, and start a rhetoric that, yeah, you know what, uh, banks are going to fail, everybody's going to be broke, but Bitcoin is going to go to a million dollars. I don't think that wins us any friends in any policy circles around the world. No. Well, I guess over time, we're going to find out how this all pans out. But uh, it's definitely been a very interesting week in, you know, in crypto, where ultimately, we've seen one of the largest and biggest financial institutions in the world, oldest financial institutions in the world, completely fold from the landscape. Um, and at the same time, completely rug its, uh, its tier one bond holds. So, you know, we live in interesting times, and I don't think that will be the first or the last European bank to go. It won't. Cool. How so, long does this take to play out is my question. Like, what's the, what do we, what do we see from here now that we've seen a few fall and like the Fed has stepped up, people are speculating around um the fed's actions obviously we've got like a rates decision in a few hours lads and we know yeah. how we like our predictions uh so i'm sure we'll touch on that at some point uh but where does the where does the banking system go from here um 250k well, seen, from an fdic sounds like that sounds like uh literally like a year 2000 number to be have fdic insurance on like when was the last time that was updated that's um seems like quite like not much money given the M1 well, supply. Well, let's, now. let's talk about let's talk about the rate, right? We've just seen a, a large print in the UK at ten point four percent, I think it was, or ten point something percent. So that would scare the regulators, and I think that they would say, you know what, we still need to keep hiking. You don't want that. You don't want it to go the other way, right? So I think there'll be a hike, maybe only twenty five basis points again. But I think that it's the it's the it's the it's the story that that's that comes with it as opposed to the number. What the, the the talking points and the conversation to me is is really the critical area. How do you think the so like we have a few? There's obviously a few banks predicting a pause at this. Point. I think as Wells and Goldman maybe predicting pause from here. Uh, I think that's super wishful thinking uh, given the rest of the backdrop. How do you think the Fed? Because it feels to me like the Fed is in like a really really tricky scenario right now right there's a number of catalysts you have the banking sector systemic issues 
um, which is obviously still like shaking things around. We have inflation not completely coming down with um, like dwellings starting to uh, pick up a little bit. Um, and we have a 2024 election year, right? So there's a few things that are bouncing around. I'm curious to um, hear from both of you how you yeah. approach this. So I, I think I think Jerome Powell is the worst Fed president in the history of the Fed, right? Let me just lay that out there because, and I'll be even more blunt. The man is a bumbling idiot, and he's a political creature. So that's part of the reason we we ended up printing seven trillion or more, right? Because uh, I, th- I think he was under a lot of pressure from the Democratic government to somehow keep make the markets look good. And uh, you know, so there was a whole narrative going around from him and Neil Kashkari and some of the other uh, guys in the Fed system that uh, the inflation that they were creating by printing so much money was transitory, and somehow the rules you know, of economics or whatever, if there are any rules, have uh, completely changed. Right. So they disregarded like a century of experience and kept printing money. Now that distorted all the market. Sure, it it did our you know crypto coins a lot of good and our bags a lot of good and the stocks a lot of good for a while. And as soon as they raised uh, rates and you know the, the whole house of cards kind of collapsed. So we saw the same you know leverage uh, get unwound in across all the markets. So you know first he blew up the markets and then he blew up the markets in a different direction, right? So now. It's been a continuous story of damage control. Did did they have to do a stimulus to address COVID? Absolutely. Did they have to do that? Like a nonstop series of stimuli? No. Then the guy comes around and starts raising rates really fast, right? Because now he realizes that the inflation story is actually not politically convenient for the Dems. So, you know, he's now under pressure from... Uh, from from some of these guys to from 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 the from the people in power in the U.S. to essentially do something about inflation. So uh, you know he's he's been kind of saying very bullish things from one side of the mouth just to keep the markets up while raising rates, and that's causing a whole bunch of confusion amongst the banks. Right? What are they supposed to do? And they've been buying treasuries because the Fed tells them to buy treasuries, and the guy keeps raising rates, so their capital gets wiped out. I've never seen this kind of incompetence. You know, even Greenspan. Who was ideologically, you know, inclined to print a lot of money, uh, wasn't quite like this. I mean, uh, Jerome Powell is 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 it's just unimaginable. So today, I think what happens is because he's a political creature, he's going to keep the rates flat. Because if he raises the rates and you know something bad happens uh, in the banking system, then he gets blamed. And if he cuts rates, then the Fed loses credibility. So because, you know, what what happens to the war on inflation if uh, the battle with inflation, if he cuts rates? So uh, he can't afford to lose credibility and he can't uh, you know afford to cause further trouble in the banking system. I, I think the only option here for him right today is to just keep the rates flat and and just skip this FMC when it comes to rate hikes. Damn, you're going for a zero, no raise. Yep. It's the safest Damn. option for Mr. Powell. Oh, it is probably the safest, man. Markets will enjoy a pause can you imagine yeah. the green i wonder things? if that is already priced in though i'm gonna put a long on right now one second <laughs> i'm with you jake do you think do you think flat <laughs> is already priced in as in no no hike i can't imagine it right i i can't imagine i think that like the inflation narrative is a really like it's huge political fuel 
for the Republican Party, man, that is just like, that is so prime to capture a huge voter base that's struggling, that inflation's still not fixed. And like, imagine like if it's not fixed by 2020, like 2024, that is just such a, I mean, that is more dangerous than the banks going down in the short term or particular banks or however they want to phrase things or like bail out specific sectors or whatever. I think the inflation thing is more detrimental to the the re-election, particularly maybe not not the economy as a whole, but the re-election, if that's the priority, I'd be like the people, man, that the inflation numbers are like actually starting to really hurt people with dwellings. That's that's when it gets real, man. When, when, you know, like um, when the the actual roof over your head becomes uh, exponentially more expensive as rental agreements roll off and loan terms roll off. Yeah, I think the, you're absolutely right. But you know, by that by that logic, maybe uh, Silicon Valley Bank would not have been uh, should not have been bailed out in the uh, from the beginning. Right, it is kind of seen as the rich people's bank in California. And in the meantime, the governor of California was lobbying uh, for his own bank to be bailed out and his wineries effectively to be bailed out because the bank with, with Silicon Valley Bank it was very controversial. Because, you know, a lot of people, the typical democratic inner city type or rural voters essentially see uh, Silicon Valley Bank as rich people's bank. So I think there's also a lot of pressure from markets, right? This I've never seen the effect that is so sensitive to stock prices. I mean, the Fed's job is not really to manage stock prices. It's to manage, you know, inflation and unemployment. Those are the two biggest variables in economics. And that's kind of what Paul Volcker focused on, right? After the savings and loan crisis, Volcker spent a lot of effort trying to stabilize the the banking system. And, you know, we went through the same thing in 2008. And now we're going through the same thing again in 2023. But uh, this is the first Fed I've seen that uh, spends a lot of time worrying about the stock market as opposed to the economic variables they can control. So maybe, you never know. I see a flag. We will see. Chris? Yeah, absolutely. Very interesting times. Uh, It's only a few hours away, so I guess we get our answers soon um, on that side of things. Should SVB have been bailed out? It's a really good question to reflect on, isn't it? Um, Yeah, Lucas, it'd be good to get your opinion whether you believe uh, SVB should have been bailed out. Was it the right decision more yeah, broadly. Yeah, 100% it was the right decision, right? I think if you didn't bail it out, then the systemic risk to the whole banking industry would have been huge. And there would have been a massive run on all the banks. So I think it was the right decision. Stem the, stem the, stem their losses. Um, make sure that people feel that the banking institutions are safe and that they are backed by the government. Because otherwise, if it wasn't, everything would be backed. I mean, ultimately, every bank gets a bank run. Uh, and we saw that in the GFC, right? How do you stem the losses? You need to stand behind the depositors. But I don't think you need to bail out the equity holders. Although, as I said on a previous podcast last week, the US government made money out of the uh, um, Troubled Asset Relief Program or the TARP at the time. They made more money than they put in. And, and so whilst people say government shouldn't bail out equity holders, when they did bail out the equity holders, they did make a profit, even though it was just a small one. Indeed. Indeed. Well, let's. Um, well, I guess we'll see in a few hours how this... Um this pans out for the coming months and it'd be interesting to listen to the particular words that he used given like how tight this rope is uh that the fed is walking at the moment yeah you know uh, what's you know what's annoying is that we spent 15 years uh, writing implementing dot frank puzzle three puzzle four and you know employed thousands or hundreds of thousands of lawyers and consultants to to do things 
to make things safer in the banking system. And then we get one weekend uh, with the bank in trouble through a lot of bad decisions. And all of that well, you know, kind of disappears in an instant, right? So the European... Well, Dodd-Frank got repealed, upset. right? Dodd-Frank got repealed, as did Glass-Steagall yeah. uh, in, in the 90s, right? And every time those regulations that are there to prevent banks taking risk get repealed, we get outcomes which we probably didn't think of. <laughs> And I think we're going to see that regulation come back. Well, at least I hope so. Yeah. Well, I mean, the, the, the Republicans still want small government, right? And I think a lot of crypto advocates like Ryan Selkis hope that uh, you know the free marketeers and people who want small government, less regulation, less involvement uh, of agencies and public life will come back to power, and you know, crypto will essentially have a good time uh, because Republicans just want the SEC to go away. So, and the IRS also to shrink quite significantly. So I don't really believe that. I think people say things that are, you know, that are quite different when they're out of power. And especially in the US, there is this policy continuity that kind of sustains itself across administrations. So it's quite important for the crypto industry to not wait for Republicans and do the best we can right now to make sure that bad policies are not set up, right? So last night there was a White House report uh, that's another news item. So there is a there is this crazy uh, White House, you know, economics economist report about digital assets. There is a whole chapter on digital assets there, and, and it says nothing good. There's not one line in there that's actually positive about the crypto industry. So I think we have a little bit of a uh, we are in a bit of a spot of bother from a policy perspective, and maybe we need to do something pretty soon. Uh, you know, this Bitcoin will go to a million dollars and fiat will go to zero. Central banks are going to die. It's probably not the narrative that's helping our cause right now. Uh, but, but, you know, again, going back to the banking crisis, uh, crypto got blamed and looks like uh, Signature Bank did indeed suffer for their crypto relationships. So what do you guys think about that? I, I just think that the crypto banks were providing us a necessary service and it was very easy to take them down. But at the same time, right, if it's just been poorly managed, they've been poorly managed, right? SVB was poorly managed. If Signature and, and, and Silvergate are poorly managed, then, you know, they just go the same way as every bank. I think they just provided on an off-ramp um, and they were the main guys in, crypt guys in crypto. So ultimately... You know, with them gone, I'm hoping that other institutions with stronger balance sheets will step into the fray and, and provide those services back. Because I think that the crypto industry does need a relationship with the fiat industry. It really does. And if it doesn't, then you're going to have two different banking systems. And, and obviously, as we talked about earlier, I think uh, one has regulators that will come down hard and the other one doesn't. I don't mind, uh, you know, two different banking systems as long as there is a real economy underneath crypto, right? I, I don't know today what I can buy or sell for crypto other than NFTs, uh, you know, where I can actually buy food or or a car or something else. In Dubai, you can buy property. In Miami, you can buy property with Bitcoin or some of the other crypto assets. But the main challenge for crypto is there isn't a lot of real economy underneath uh, crypto assets yet. So crypto can't really afford a different banking system just yet, unless we all move to crypto and start paying for goods and services in crypto. It just, it just, it just hasn't got the network effect to be able to stand on its own, right? It still needs, it very much needs the traditional banking system right now. And anyone that like the, and that's why I like, I, I struggle with uh, like the, uh, like the Balaji, like $1 million Bitcoin bet 
because in order for that to happen, the system needs to fail to an extraordinary level. And if that event does happen, there's unintended consequences that will impact this industry. Literally, why would they let money come in or off it I, from any established? That would just it'd just be clamped so hard. I, I don't think like it. I guess like the I guess to the point that we were just talking about that and how it seems to be crypto specific banks. We had Silvergate and Signature, etc. Is that there's obviously rumors circulating around that people believe it was targeted. Uh, part of Operation Choke Point that was getting around for a while. Do How do you guys feel about that? Do you feel like there's any truth to that or is it just a coincidence of high, like higher risk banks more likely to support a higher risk market in crypto and here we have the, like, that's just like the, the roll up of the risk appetite of these banks to also take those risks in long duration treasuries? I think at this point, there is a lot of evidence that you know there is substance to those allegations, right? By Barney Frank, who was on, who was on the board of uh, Signature. So, uh, you know, the Wall Street Journal reported on this yesterday. And uh, uh, I, I don't know, you know, whether if, 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 if the bank or their shareholders sued the NYDFS, you know, how much of a... Uh, how much of a claim they would have given the wide discretion uh, the state regulator has on banking in the state. Uh, I think, you know, uh, the, the risk is that, you know, you start looking under the covers and then you find sort of controls issues similar to what we had with uh, Silvergate, right, where I think Alameda was able to uh, attract customer deposits in their name, which were originally intended for FTX. So you might find that, uh, you know, every bank has AML issues, right? Every bank has compliance and controls issues. But if the, if the, if the regulator, and that's part of the social contract with banks, right? That the government will bail them out or the government will essentially backstop the failure of banks. But in, in, in exchange, it's not like the tech industry. I think the Silicon Valley guys don't realize that banking is part of the the essential social fabric, and that's why it's so regulated. And part of the contract with banks is that you know, look, we'll take care of you guys, but you know, you gotta you're not completely free entities, especially not after the financial crisis. So I believe there is some substance to the that uh, allegation by Mr. Frank. But I also don't know how much recourse. There will be a bunch of lawsuits. You know, I, I see, I, I can imagine Custodia Bank in Wyoming, Caitlin Long's bank suing the Fed. I think that's happening. Uh, I can see NYDFS getting sued by maybe some of the independent citizens or by the shareholders of, uh, you know, Signature Bank. But uh, I don't know how, you know, strong that case is going to be, but we'll see. Lucas, what are you? What are your thoughts on that uh, situation? Um, so I don't really. Uh, I think I think the toughest thing is just the wait and see stage, because people are always going to speculate where where we're going, um, but no one really knows for sure. Um, obviously, senators and politicians love a crisis because they get to grandstand and and, grant, and get on the on the. Um, on the uh, on the grandstand and 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 show how how important these things are, but don't forget they all kind of voted to re- repeal this stuff as well. Um, and obviously, we're in a crisis as people can make a lot of money. So you know, ultimately, you know, my view on on the whole of this 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 episode is um, regulations existed and they got repealed, laws existed and they got repealed. 
and the GFC could easily be linked back to the repeal of Glass-Steagall. And I believe that we could easily look at the repeal of of Dodd-Frank and and, and the situations we found ourselves in now. And don't forget that non-US banks were also subject to Dodd-Frank if they had US entities. So when I worked at Credit Suisse, right, I couldn't do a lot of things um, in prop trading anymore because of Dodd-Frank. And we had to find ways to deliver outcomes to clients that meant that we were actually taking way more risk than we otherwise would. If you trade exotics, for example, which is what was my main thing, you're you're running a massive prop book because you're always short correlation. It's antennas that you just can't trade. So ultimately, you warehouse risk um, for, on behalf of clients, but you essentially take them up to market profits and losses on that. Um, and we were trying to find ways to hedge all this stuff, uh, innovative ways to say, hey, we can hedge it with this, we can hedge it with that. But it wasn't clear that they would get around the Dodd-Frank problem because the two instruments weren't linked. So there was a lot of things that happened, um, ultimately forcing banks to hold a lot of treasuries on their balance sheet, which obviously with inflation and and yields hitting higher, caused those mark-to-market losses on balance sheets. But ultimately, these these institutions were forced to hold these assets. So, you know, I don't think think it's easy to finger point at any single entity or any single institution. Ultimately, what we needed to get to was a balance between what we had with Glass-Steagall which allowed the investment banks to do whatever they wanted, but couldn't use their balance sheet or client client assets to, to, to take leverage risk, which is essentially why JP Morgan and Chase weren't merged before. And when Glass-Steagall got re- repealed, we got these mega banks that came along uh, that had massive investment arms, massive um, uh, deposit taking, you know, Bank of New York Mellon, um, sorry, not the wrong one, Bank, Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, Look at that. We look at um, Citigroup uh, and what that was able to do. Um, you know, Citibank was a banking institution. It couldn't do half the things that its competitors are doing. And then, obviously, with the repeal of Glass-Steagall, we got Citigroup, and that makes made a big difference too. So, um, yeah, I think um, if if I if I want to be truly truly upfront about it, I think the blame squarely sits with with the politicians and the regulations and the laws. Um, because banks essentially got herded into a corner and had to make decisions that that ultimately were detrimental to themselves. Um, I just don't think the legislation was very well thought through. And uh, I'm hoping that hindsight, uh, well, the benefit of hindsight will get proper legislation that actually protect deposit-taking institutions and client assets without the requirement for government bailouts. And that's essentially what the problem is. If governments are being forced to bail out deposit-taking institutions on behalf of depositors, then something is going wrong at the risk-taking side of of the on the asset liability management of those banks, and that needs to be addressed. And why can't they hedge their risk? Why can't they do the things they need to do? You know, hedging ten-year treasuries is quite easy in, in the in the interbank swaps market. So why are we running naked yield risk? Is that because it's the only risk we're allowed to take? Because that's the only prop risk. Well, it's not really prop risk if yields are, are, are zero bound and you hold a load of 10 years, yields can only go one way if you assume there won't be negative rates. So if yields can only go one way and inflation is clearly on the horizon based on COVID, et cetera, then you're taking huge prop risk as a bank, which I didn't know that you were allowed to do. Uh, and if you're allowed to do it because you're holding US treasuries and that's your, that's your, that's your uh, reason to be able to play it, then you are taking massively wrong way bets with 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 yields, and that's just just how I see it. I just can't believe that 
we're causing these blow-ups because depositors withdrew their money, but ultimately it's a mark-to-market hit in treasuries and mortgage-backed securities due to inflation. Well, the Fed's job is to control inflation. And if it hasn't done that and we hit 9%, 10% inflation, then ultimately the Fed should be bailing everyone out because it's because of the Fed that we ended up here in the first place and government government, uh, policy. So, yeah, I mean, Reese, I don't know what your thoughts are, but that's where I'm at. I think it's the government's fault we're here in the first place. In the meantime, in the meantime, there's a lot of you know tweets about uh, why Bitcoin's price movement is a sufficient validation of crypto, and I think one of the things that you know is going on right now is a lot of uh, substantive questions are being asked about what crypto's utility is, right? As in, outside of the financialization, uh, what can people actually use the technology for? And I think maybe financialization is the utility. Uh, but you know what's happening is that the, the the structure of crypto markets is being used, or the lack of structure in crypto markets is being used as an invalidation of the entire value of the technology and the asset class. So, so yeah, so this banking crisis obviously demonstrates some utility of crypto, right? But then, I mean, uh, as 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 sort of a uh, an asset be some of us escape to in panic uh, environments, but I think it remains to be seen how the asset will perform as things stabilize and therefore uh, so I, I, I think uh, so, so we are you know some of the fundamental questions are being asked right now. Uh, but I think what people are looking to is more and more sort of uh, utility, you know, like social media applications like lens or, you know, some of the, uh, I think, uh, you know, the, the utility that's there for consumers in Lebanon and so on and so forth. So uh, that narrative isn't kind of going around. The only narrative I'm seeing from crypto defenders, uh, my colleagues in the industry is, oh, yeah, look, price went up, so crypto must be right. And I don't think that addresses the the questions that people are asking, even though banking is in a bit of a, uh, banking obviously is in a bad shape. Yeah, I, I agree, man. I think that's it's um unfortunately we're not focused. I, like sometimes when this stuff happens, you know, it's um initially we see capital move through. Obviously, we had a move in Bitcoin that showed a reflection of the price to the narrative that's getting around at the moment around the I guess the very reason why um Satoshi wrote the white paper, right, and developed this technology was to like off the back of two thousand eight and we're seeing some inflow there. But I think like midterm it's bearish like obviously more broadly because risk off assets we've talked about this uh in the last two pods that uh they're very much risk on just further on the spectrum than uh tech stocks now so short term bullish mid-term uh bearish if the economy goes that way and long term it just is another hey this is why uh cryptocurrency like it's a long-term uh real world reference case where we can point to again and say, look, it happened in 2008 and it's happening here again in 2023. Where will you be the next time it happens? So like long-term, it creates a, like a stronger value proposition. But I think like the um, there's still there's a bumpy ride to get through to that point uh, where you can use it uh, in an argument that isn't impacted by the macro economy too. But then I guess we're seeing uh, if we move back to more DeFi oriented stuff uh, off the back of this and the regulations off at the top of the uh, the pod, Ajit, you uh, mentioned uh, Jared at Sushi and uh, the SEC uh, serving 
there. Do you want to give us a recap of uh, the happenings there? And we can discuss... Um, that's probably an interesting topic. We had... There's been rumors circulating around some Wells notices uh, for a few weeks and looks like the first one to pop its head up. So do you want to give us a recap on, um, on the story here? Yeah. So remember... Uh, David Hoffman was on the Bankless podcast and he said that uh, at East Denver, notices were flying around and lawyers were saying that every you know whole bunch of DeFi protocols have been served with either a subpoena or a Wells notice. I, he is right. I mean, I'm going to say this out loud. He is absolutely bang on. Uh, but he got a lot of, you know, uh, he got in a bit of a trouble for saying that because people don't want anything, any news that affects crypto prices adversely, especially, you know, if, uh, if if I have a bunch of Lido, I don't want anything to be said about Lido. If I'm sitting on a bunch of sushi, I don't want anything negative or adverse to be said about uh, sushi tokens. But I think what happened with sushi is that, you know, they need to, uh, Jared needs legal defense, uh, the entity associated with Jared also needs legal defense. So they have to get the money from the DAO and you know, lawyers aren't cheap. Uh, the, the, the bills add up quite quickly. Uh, so they decided that, you know, okay, we need to raise 3 million and for that we have to ask the, ask the DAO. So now everyone knows that Sushi has got a letter, but you know what, if, if you're a well-organized corporate structure associated with the DeFi protocol, like, you know, Uniswap or Lido or, you know, whatever else you can think of, then you're not going to disclose this stuff, right? Unless Gary Gensler or SEC decide to disclose. Uh, the protocol isn't going to disclose anything. So there are a whole bunch of these other protocols that have got similar, I believe. I mean, uh, again, no one would tell me either, but I genuinely think that a whole bunch of people, you know, have got letters that they're not going to disclose, whereas Sushi has to disclose it. Uh, my take on this is keep calm and carry on. So these things will drag on for a while. And, uh, you know, there is a, uh, in the meantime, we'll hopefully see more legislation and rulemaking, uh, but there's definitely no need for panic around this stuff. The SEC or the CFTC aren't very DeFi friendly, so, you know, there will be other uh, letters flying out. Is it a line in the sand that we need to focus more as a community as a whole in aligning towards a lot like lobbying as one community instead of trying to isolate things. Obviously, we had uni and the government's the governance vote, um, and was it last year or the year before, around uh, supplying grants for lobbyists? Uh, is it something that we need to address more as yeah. a to try to take this on? Uh, yeah, SEC so doesn't seem to be doing quite well against XRP, man. And that's probably like that. I'm not sure if you've been reading like the uh, excerpts from that. Uh, those been. Read, they've been... And they have been tough to try to justify what they're doing in the courtroom. So yeah, um, so so SEC is having a hard time with with XRP. You know, depending on who you who you talk to, some people are very bullish on XRP's case. And you know, XRP went up twenty five percent last night. And I, I was joking. You know, is the judge trading or what? So which is a joke, by the way. Uh, so it's not clear. You know, where that case stands. There, if you talk to the Ripple guys, they're saying, oh yeah, there is a summary judgment coming in our favor. You talk to anyone who's independent and they're like, you know what, it's actually quite nuanced. Uh, SEC will win some, Ripple will win some, or the case will go to trial. So we'll find out, I think, in a month or two max, I believe, you know, based on all the tweets from Fox News and so on, where that's going. Uh, but with, with DeFi, I mean, DeFi confuses a lot of people, right? So... Uh, so the, the sushi and all of this securities law stuff is not the biggest risk. The the, the biggest issue is with what's going on with Euler Finance, uh, and you know essentially this exchange of assets between the North Korean 
uh, guys, uh, the the Ronin exploiter, and you know you, you can't have like DeFi exploiters exchanging messages with with apparent North Koreans, right? That's uh, that's a much bigger concern right now uh, from a from a regulatory standpoint than what's going on with Sushi. You know, SEC wants to sue Sushi. Go ahead, they can do a subpoena, ask for information, and then issue a Wells notice if they don't like what they see. And then you know, then uh, then the process can carry on, right? Probably for a year, probably for two. But the the AML stuff is far more worrying, and I think it's also bigger. You know, some of this exploits, hacks, and money flying around between bad actors is is a much bigger concern in my mind uh, than than anything that's going on with sushi right now, or or anything the SEC can do, because a lot of those SEC cases are civil. You know, trials or civil cases, you get fined or you you stop the activity you were doing or some combination of then you or at best you have some sort of a uh, you know you get you you get asked to disgorge some profits or something. Uh, so the remedies are pretty you know okay, right? I mean these are civil remedies, but in a criminal situation where there is potential criminal liability, then you can have serious consequences like with Alexei Petsev who is in jail for tornado cash. So, so those types of things worry me a lot more uh, than than anything that's going on with SEC and this and sushi, right? To keep calm and carry on. on the oil, the oil exploit is an interesting developing situation. I'm sure you've been keeping track based on what you just said around like the but they've returned some funds to some people, um, which is very strange. It doesn't seem like it's. Um, uh, the group that's pulled this off or the individual that's pulled it off was very much well prepared as to what to do post. And we see this with a few exploits in the past. Like multi-chain bridge was a good one as well. Like the, it's almost like they, the hacker got the funds, didn't know what to do with them, panicked a bit and ended up returning like most of it. Um, and it's interesting to see them. They obviously went to the tornado cache and it's been, people have been sending messages to that hacker address and I wouldn't advise doing this obviously. Um, given like the where these are siphoning through, and you don't want to be part of that chain analysis one day, um, that there people are requesting their funds back, saying it's their life savings, and the hackers returning some funds to specific people. Uh, but who knows what the actual whether that you don't know like the the anonymity means that it could actually be also inside just distribution back to people that they know. Um, yeah. Yeah, remember when centralized exchange, we had like a decade of centralized exchanges getting hacked and all of them, or, or a lot of them actually involved insiders, uh, yeah. e- either just stupidity or insiders and quite a few actually involved insiders, right? So I wonder what's going on with so many security issues amongst DeFi protocols because you know, the temptation is large and so far uh, there haven't been a lot of consequences, uh, you, you know? So, so, so I, I think uh, for an investigative journalist or someone, this is quite an interesting area to look into as to what's going on with so many rug pulls and exploits. Uh, and and the only guy who got caught last year, uh, apart from Alexei Petsev, who didn't actually do anything wrong, uh, is this uh, Mr. Eisenberg, who exploited mango markets and actually tweeted about it. So, you know, he self-incriminated. Otherwise, I don't know if any other... You know, exploiters or drug pullers who have who are in jail today. No, I I can't think of any off the top of my head. It's interesting, isn't it? I think like for some reason I have this like really bad feeling in the back of my head that the um, blaming uh, North Korean hacker group 
uh, for large and like outflows and stuff isn't necessarily like always investigated correctly. Um, based on what I see on chain, it's very hard to justify someone actually knowing that when you know how blockchains work, um, that they're just associating addresses. But I think it's an easy scapegoat as well without... Yeah, it's, it's not, also actually, political not, sometimes, right? Yeah. Just blame people foreign actors and, yeah, and make exactly. all of crypto look bad by doing that. Yeah, uh, and and invoke the the heavy weaponry of national security as opposed to having to investigate and prove a case in court. Just 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 say you know North Korea and it's just just yeah. absolve. No one asked. No one asked. Yeah. No one asked any questions because after exactly, the Ronin, after the Ronin bridge, and then it was a PDF for job applications that compromised like five of the private keys for the bridge. No one asked any more questions after. You know, after you know, Binance yeah. obviously filled the hole with A16Z uh, for the guys at Sky Mavis and things. But that was there was no more questions, which I found odd for that much money to just say. Exactly. I don't know. You get yeah, to say yeah. a magic word, and nobody asks any more questions. It's unbelievable, but you know that's where things are at, and we'll see in two or three years. I think the the FBI and the IRS are still going after things like you know uh, Bitcoin mixers based on with the capabilities they've built over four or five years, and I'm, maybe they're building new capabilities to go after some of this other stuff. So we'll see how that plays out. But anyways, this is getting a bit heavy and serious. You know, uh, uh, I think uh, I think the today is going to be a very interesting day. We have FOMC. I'm kind of, I'm definitely taking exposure to Bitcoin. You know, it's not a recommendation, as they say, not investment advice, but I always have to kind of take a shot at what if I'm wrong, right? So make sure I have at least a partial exposure to Bitcoin uh, with, with some portion of my assets today and see, you know, if it dumps, it dumps. And Bitcoin is a nice asset in the sense that you can hold it uh, until the Fed prints, uh, right? There is no Gary Gensler coming after it. There's no like, legal or regulatory risk flying around Bitcoin. Uh, so worst case, you just hold it for three years you know, and wait for your unrealized loss uh, to become a profit. Uh, whereas uh, if you don't take exposure and Balaji is not exactly right, but you know, Bitcoin goes to 200K, I'm going to regret it. So that's kind of my stand on the whole issue. Hey, Jade, I thought you'd be buying Arbitrum IOU tokens. Oh, no, I, I, I got a nice Arbitrum airdrop. So I'm hoping to sell it for BTC ASAP. This futures open on uh, BitMEX, I think. Now they've got futures open. Yeah. So remember Arthur Hayes before Arthur Hayes uh, was uh, <laughs> picked up by the Feds. Uh, Ethereum had a really hard time funding because he had a very efficient exchange for shorting ETH, and he had these ETH perps and futures listed, and which were widely used for shorting ETH. And a lot of people at my former employer used to complain, you know, it was a consensus and Ethereum company. So I uh, used to complain about how Arthur is suppressing the price. And as soon as Arthur went to jail, he had the best time in history. Now, uh, now Arthur has chosen Arbitrum. So it'll be very interesting to see how these, uh, you know, popular shorting instruments impact the price of Arbitrum. But I, I know a lot of people are very bullish. You know, people have been approaching on Telegram, even for my micro airdrop, you know, it's it's not that big, right? It's it's material, but it's not huge. And like, hey, we want to buy Arbitrum from you for X price or Y price. And some of these are pretty serious triggers. So there's a huge amount of FOMO going into the airdrop. Uh, but, uh, you know, as they say, always sell half the airdrop, but, you know, it's again, not investment advice. And keep the other half in case. I sold all my uni tokens day one. Yeah. But Bitcoin is Bitcoin is good. You know, Bitcoin was the worst that can happen. You hold it for five years. I don't know if I can hold Arbitrum for five years. 
No. Well, we've got like, doesn't like this Arbitrum token launch, assuming that Alameda had a, like a convertible SAF to token warrant. Doesn't this make FTX a little bit more solvent? Didn't we just get like a few cents back on the dollar? Yeah, the funny thing uh, is the FTX Ventures portfolio was pretty solid. You know, I mean, if you go through the list, it's actually very good because FTX had access. Everyone, it's like Binance, right? Everyone wanted their token to eventually list on FTX and FTX Ventures being associated with FTX. Everyone wanted to have, uh, give Sam a share of their tokens because, you know, it, it might help with listing in the future. And so they ended up with this really nice venture portfolio. Uh, it might actually bail the whole thing out. You're absolutely right. We'll see. Imagine. It, it, Imagine. it is very. It is a very solid. But what did they have? A hundred so million missing in 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 um Sui? Did they? Uh, I, I, th- I think it was a much smaller number they invested, but I think it's a significant share of of the total missed alloc- like you know venture allocation. So they could they could end up making a pretty solid number. <laughs> And they also had Anthropic AI that's got uh, yeah. <laughs> nothing to do with crypto, but Google has kind of, you know, just 10x the valuation on that thing. Huge. Yeah. Huge. Sam, Sam's going to make it after he doesn't make it. Imagine if the court case takes so long that it's solvent again <laughs> after all this stuff from like Vess. <laughs> yeah, but Sam's case is fraud, right? So Sam has committed fraud and this criminal liability doesn't go away even if they that's get... True. Uh, yeah, but but the customers could be made whole depending on you know. Uh, but a lot of people can't really wait that long. That's the problem. Uh, it there hasn't been on much. Uh, well, there hasn't been much updates on that side of things, hasn't there? Like not that I've seen anyway. Yeah. So so the funny thing is, Balaji, you know, is starting to call the banking system Uncle Sam Bankman Freed, because what's going on with the banking system is quite similar in terms of you know the quality of assets like you know ftt tokens just funny money being printed by the fed and that's kind of what banks are currently holding or some of these treasuries that are worth a lot less but they're kind of held to market and therefore not really marked down so i I thought the 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 balaji's thing about uh, calling the banking system uncle banks sam bankman freed it was quite hilarious Uh, i gotta give the man credit for being funny is it SBV or SBF? SBF, what is it? Sam Bankman-Fried. Uncle Sam is not just Uncle Sam anyway. It's Uncle Sam Bankman-Fried. I thought it was Sam Bankrun fraud, but anyway. Uh, that, was, that was Sam, but this is Uncle Sam. In the Uncle States. Sam. Uncle Sam Bankman. Silicon Valley Bank. Silicon Valley Bankman. It's all coming together now, lads. It was all in our faces the whole time. It was all there. So, FOMC uh, tonight. I'm not even sure what I want tonight. I, I'm going to go 25 bits. I think they're going to go 25 I'm going to go with, yeah. yeah. yeah I'm going to go with flat. I'm yet to be wrong. I want 25. I'm yet to be wrong. I have okay, no so I'm taking the, oh man, I'm in minority. Oh no. Yeah. Cool. I think 25 bits, bits would be the right call, but I don't think Jerome Powell has it in him, but we'll see. I would have to be happy to be proved wrong. He can't win in this situation right now, you know. Like it's you cannot win. You're gonna upset somebody either side of this thing. Um, but 25 bips would kind of indicate that the Fed is committed to fighting inflation, right? Which is the most important thing right now. And uh, yeah, the banking system—they've already backstopped, right? They, that's it. They've just thrown the entire might of the U.S. government saying, you know, we're going to bail out the banks no matter what happens. We're not going to let depositors uh, get wrecked. 
I just raise the rates. Just show that you're still committed to fighting inflation. That's the right thing to do. That's what Volcker would have done. I just don't think Jerome Powell is Volcker, but we'll see. When they initially announced that they were doing the bailout, I thought to myself, this is literally permission to raise as fast as you want now. Because, you know, you've just given, you've got the green light. Um, yeah, that makes sense. And, you know, so we'll see how far okay. they go. A 50, I'll be very happy with 50 would crush. I can't my bags. <laughs> that's what it's all about yeah uh gosh well i think yeah i'm in the 25 bips camp um, for this all part. right let's see how this goes so any closing comments i think we're you know almost at time uh, uh I, uh next week i will will get a good uh a popular guest and uh, you know that's the first time uh to, to discuss some of the I'm I'm expecting a very exciting week. So we'll discuss FOMC and some of the, you know, the ZK EVM launched by Polygon. Uh, we have three zero knowledge rollups launching. There's a lot of lot going on in tech, right? So ZK Sync, uh, Polygon, and Consensus, all three are launching their layer two solutions. Arbitrum is launching a token this week. So we have a lot to look forward to. And then there is obviously the FOMC and Balaji going on with his uh, evangelical campaign. So Sorry, it should be a pretty so exciting. Yeah, so there's much. a lot to talk about next week. And the mutable X bringing Polygon ZK EVM across. Yes, yes, yes. How did how did we miss that? So, so, so just just a quick one on that, right? So, immutable X and Polygon are very strong competitors. They kind of have you know ninety five percent, ninety ninety five percent of the Web three gaming market. So, some of the biggest uh, games by users are essentially on these two chains. Uh, now, I think Immutable X want to focus on just building a tremendous gaming experience, whereas Polygon, you know, is is it has the the best uh, zero knowledge rollup tech in the industry. So, so they're sort of coming together and saying, look, you guys are you know great at building tech, so we'll use your tech. Uh, you know, we are we want to focus entirely on sort of gaming experiences, so we'll focus on that, and Immutable X will use Polygon's tech. Uh, to so that you know, then they can focus their capital, talent, resources, expertise on getting better games and building better games, driving adoption faster. And Polygon can spend, you know, can continue to build uh, zk rollups, right? So it's it's a pretty it's a pretty interesting deal, uh, and and I think it's 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 really good for gaming because we do need you know, given the amount of capital that's gone into gaming, uh, two billion from Immutable X and Polygon alone, uh, and. You know, I don't know how many other billions from everyone else. We do want to see some a, a Web three gaming summer. Uh, you know, in a year or so, in a year or two. I think there's uh, without going down the rabbit hole between different layer two scaling solutions. Um, the in the last week, Polygon decided to spin off Avail, uh, their Validium, um, yeah. and obviously Immutable X is a Validium, right? So. Uh, on Starknet. So we're seeing like that's an interesting crossover of them spinning that out, then bringing the ZK EVM in. Um, I think the immutable uh, expected like the adoption for Cairo the, that like to be adopted much cleaner and the transpile yeah. to be much cleaner than it is. And I think by uh, like bringing the Solidity community, it would be massive for IMX. Uh, I think it's a, a really yeah. good move for them to bring in the Solidity community. So but let's not yeah, go down too far. <laughs> Yeah. 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 Cairo is ZK optimized. It's not, you know, optimized for smart contract development. So Starkware are also tracked to now write an EVM. I think the only you know, uh, VMs that will manage to compete that I can see currently that will compete with the EVM at in any uh, at, at any degree right now are the Solana VM, but also the Aptos and you know Sui Move VMs and the Fuel 
the and those three are very interesting but there is a nuphill task ahead of you know these guys then there are a bunch of other people like Leo Starkware who are building very privacy sensitive and you know or rather uh, zk optimized or those types of applications but building a developer community around them is is is, is a lot of work so it'll take some time dev community is everything the community is everything if you, if you don't have builders you don't have users you don't have creators right it all starts with people building uh, building apps and that's Ethereum's edge. Uh, it'll be a hard one to fight. Agreed. Agreed. All right, gentlemen. Uh, Lucas, any closing comments? Yeah, it's been a pretty sad uh, last sort of 10 days, I think. I think, um, you know, there's a lot of people out there are now about to lose their jobs because of extremely poor risk management by by their, by their colleagues. And, um, you know, I think the rot started at Credit Suisse after Brady Dugan left, Brady was obviously a great CEO and and I think did an amazing job. And ultimately, we've gone, you know, from that 15-year period of just complete demise. I mean, when I joined Credit Suisse, the share price was 45 Swiss francs. Now it's not even, you know, I think it's about 60 cents, 60 Swiss, uh, 0.6 Swiss francs or 0.8 Swiss francs. And uh, I've got a lot of friends and colleagues who I've worked with over the years who are going to be, you know, trying to find, you know, new opportunities, new jobs, et cetera, and um, through no fault of their own. So, you know, just a big shout out to those guys and say, you know, sometimes it's just unlucky and, you know, um, good luck in the future. That'd be my, uh, my only um, final parting words. Absolutely. I think that's a great thought. Uh, wishing all of our colleagues in from the banking the industry you know the best of luck with the with the with the months ahead and there's always space for you in web3 don't forget we just web3 laid off thirty thousand people over the last 12 months so we might there's more space now there's more space now all right guys let's pull it out of here take care let's see guys thanks all right guys